You're listening to Yishai and Friends on Israel National Radio. Welcome and shalom to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, and Israel. It's great to have you here with us again this week. I'm your co-host Ray Patterson here on Noahide Nations, and let me say hello to Adam, my co-host. Hey Ray, how you doing today? I'm doing well. You doing all right? I am doing pretty well. Well, we had a, a previous interview with Dr. Golding, which was uh, a tremendous interview. I mean, it was very, very insightful. I think our audience got a lot out of it. In fact, they, I think we got so much out of it that when we had to leave that interview, we were on the launch pad, all engines going, and then the show <laughs> ended and we couldn't get off the ground. It, so It was so hard to, <laughs> to, to finish there because it, was, it had gotten into a, another interesting area, which we could have stretched on for a couple of more shows, I think. Easily. Well, and and I, I have to say that we are honored and that uh, Professor Golding has decided to join us again. It's certainly very gracious of you. Uh, so let me go ahead and welcome Professor Dr. Joshua Golding. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be back with you. Well, we're glad to have you with us, and, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, because as I mentioned to Adam, we got our ourselves all all geared up and, and all, all engines go, and all of a sudden we had to shut everything down. And I truly hate when that happens, but I, I want to thank you for uh, coming uh, back on, on board for uh, round two, as it were. And, and <laughs> well, I just I'm want... glad to be back with you. <laughs> well, what you're doing is fantastic. Great. And, and something has been, been plaguing me uh, since our last interview, and that's uh, you, you, you kind of uh, felt somewhat confused by where I was going with part of my uh, uh, dialogue. And all I was really trying to say is that Hashem is so infinite that in, in His infinite wisdom, it was able to take both a, a religious, spiritual uh, commandments and uh, secular, if you will, commandments, civil commandments, and combine them into and, and, a religion called and, Judaism. And, of course, Ray, you're referring back to the, the show that we did on, on natural law. Exactly. Law. Exactly. So... Uh, yeah, well, but we've got a new a new uh, uh, interview today, and it is about the person who is giving us such fits in our last <laughs> interview, and that's the Rombom, the Rombom. And uh, well, first off, um, Doctor Golding, can you tell us a little bit yeah. who, who this Rombom person is? Wow. Well, who the Rombom <laughs> is? Um, Moses Maimonides. His dates are um, 1135, some say um, 1138 to 1204. Uh, he was born in Spain, in uh, I think Cordoba, and um, his family uh, was forced to move because of uh, Muslim oppression. They went to uh, North Africa, they went to Morocco, to Fez, then they his family went to um, the Holy Land for a, lo- a short time, and then he ended up in Fostat, which is old Cairo, and he uh, he became probably, if you had to pick one figure in um, post-scriptural uh, and post-Talmudic Judaism, if you had to pick one figure who was the most important figure in uh in, in Judaism or Judaic thought, it would be Moses Maimonides. He was um, uh, he was um, a very special figure in that he was 
first of all, a master of the of the scripture, a master of the Talmud. He uh, he wrote uh, the Code of Jewish Law, or the Mishnah Torah, as it's called, which is 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 one of the most authoritative works in Jewish law. And he, but he was also uh, a major philosopher. He wrote uh, the Guide to the Perplexed, which is is a great work not only in Jewish philosophy but in uh, in philosophy generally. Uh, he was also uh, a, a great scientist. He was known as a uh, he was really a polymath. I mean he a Renaissance man before the Renaissance. I mean, he was a scientist, he was a mathematician, a bit of an astronomer, um, and he was a, I think he was, um, if I'm not mistaken, he was the personal physician to the Grand Vizier of the of the Sultan Saladin. So he, and he was also a great Jewish leader. I mean, he was, he was someone who was involved in Jewish communal life, not only in his hometown, but people wrote to him with questions from all over the Jewish uh, the Jewish world, and he would write back answers, give guidance. He was known for uh, writing letters and epistles to, uh, to Yemen and to, to Baghdad, to other places. Uh, and um, so he was, a, he was a, a scholar of the first order, a philosopher, a first-rate philosopher, and uh, he's um, he, he there's a there's a famous statement I forget who not sure who came up with this but from Moses to Moses there was no one like Moses <laughs> meaning from Moses that Sinai to Moses Maimonides there was no one like Moses and Mimosha um, Lamosha Lohaya Kamosha so he's um, both in Jewish law and in Jewish philosophy he is. He's considered to be probably the greatest figure ever. Well, I, I know that he was a, a physician as well, which you'd already mentioned. Uh, was was he a psychiatrist also as, as part of that title, or was he just strictly an, uh, an MD in the sense of uh, family practice, if you will? Well, um, there, there's actually uh, a, a in, in his commentary on the Mishnah, which was, a work that I believe he he finished writing when he was thirty years old, but in his commentary on the uh, on the Mishnah, there's a section of that which is somewhat famous, and it's called the the eight chapters. And in the eight chapters, he goes into the nature of the soul, and you know, psychiatry it means doctor doctorhood of the soul, medicine of the soul. A psychiatrist is a doctor of the soul. And in the Shmona Prakim, he talks about um, spiritual malaise and how to cure it. So I guess you could say he was not only a medical doctor in our sense, but also a, a soul doctor. Well, I think, uh, I know for Adam and I and a great many of our listeners, if not all, uh, Rambam is, is certainly, uh, his writings have had an impact uh, on us. And I'm, I'm kind of curious of, of your opinion of not only the you know what impact did he have on Judaism itself, mm-hmm. but also within the Noahide movement. Mm-hmm. What impact do you feel he has had on us Noahides? Well, 
You know, the impact on the Noahides per se is, uh, you might know more about that than me. I I mean, um, I'm, yeah, gosh, that's, that's a tough question for me to answer. What is his impact specifically on the Noahide movement? I mean, I, I mean, I know that Maimonides was, uh, you know, probably the single most important uh, codifier of Jewish law, and I do know that many of the um, non-Jewish scholars, such as, for example, John Selden, who was uh, and, and Hugo Grotius, who were very involved in, in in the notion of international law, these are people who were in the 1700s, more or less, in in Europe. Um, were very much, uh, were, were, to, to some extent, to a large extent, a lot of their knowledge of the Noahide Law was mediated through Maimonides. So I think Maimonides had an important, um, played an important role in publicizing the notion of the Noahide Commandments because, um, you know, not everybody was going to read the Talmud, but a lot of people became familiar with Maimonides. A lot of intellectuals became familiar with Maimonides' writings and through that became familiar with the notion of uh, at least his exposition of the Noahide Commandments. Um, but 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 that but what I'm saying is that Maimonides' influence was was felt throughout the Jewish world because he he was the first one who took the very vast sort of encyclopedic uh, system of the Talmud and Jewish law and codified it in a very clear and concise manner, um, and this had a very important impact on on the Jewish world in bringing about a sort of um, recognition of a of an accepted body of uh, what we call halakha uh, of Jewish law as to be pra- as uh, to be practiced so um, Maimonides himself was was very concerned because at his time he felt well there were a few things going on one was that Maimonides wanted to bring a certain kind of um, uh, commonality uh, to accept to Jewish practice. So by by writing his code, he you know really, I think he if he didn't achieve his goal perfectly, he achieved a lot of it. And but also there was another thing going on for Maimonides, and that was and this is where there was a little bit of a controversy associated with Maimonides, is that Maimonides felt that um, a lot of the the rabbis were engaged in a sort of endless pursuit of studying the Talmud, and he felt that to some degree uh, it was necessary to encourage people to to spend more time reflecting on philosophy than on Jewish law. Um, so part of his part of my money's goal in codifying Jewish law was to put some kind of um, a closure on the study of the Talmud and to encourage his fellow Jews to engage in the study of science and philosophy as well. And that's to some extent where Maimonides was a controversial figure within within Judaism, because a lot of Jewish scholars felt that he was going too far in saying that, well, we really don't need to study the Talmud anymore. We can just read his code of law. Well, let me let's pick this up. Let, let's focus yeah. on this notion of philosophy. What was the uh, role, or, or how was philosophy viewed uh, b- 
before the time of, of uh, the Rambam and during, even like what was what was its role in Judaism, if you will? Well, I mean, I, I, it's hard to you know give a, uh, a straight answer to that question. I think you had different camps, different views, different groups with different perspectives, just as you had in the Muslim world um, before Maimonides, during the time of Maimonides, there were all sorts of views about how to try to put together, if you will, the science and philosophy of the day, which, which largely came from the Greek tradition. It was an outgrowth, outgrowth of the Greek, you know, Plato and Aristotle and, their fo- and the schools that followed them. Um, and the, the, the scriptural or biblical uh, tradition. So, um, you know, Maimonides' um, view was that there was, there, there's a way of, as it were, reconciling the two views, that there's a way of harmonizing to a large degree, um, and scholars, of course, differ on, on, you know, where exactly Maimonides comes down on this, but overall, I think, Every, every, everyone would agree, every reader of Maimonides would agree that to some extent what Maimonides was trying to do was bring together um, the Jewish tradition, the biblical tradition, the rabbinic tradition, the Talmud, and put it somehow together with the, uh, the philosophical uh, tradition, if you will, that came from the Greeks and... Um, so my, and Maimonides' view was that there is a way of putting those things together. There is a kind of, his, his book, his, you know, his single, his greatest work of all, I believe, is his famous work, The Guide to the Perplexed. And the reason it's called The Guide to the Perplexed is because he had students, I mean, real life students, who were perplexed about how to fit together philosophy or science and or science. Um, in those days, they didn't make such a hard and fast distinction between philosophy and science as we do today. But um, the perplexed are people who have a tough time reconciling philosophy and science with, on the one hand, with Judaism, the scriptural tradition on the other. And he, he set out to, in some way, harmonize the two. Let me ask you this. Uh, what, yeah. what, what is, I mean... The Rambam, it's not like the Rambam discovered philosophy within Judaism. I mean, you have people like Sadi Gaon, who, you know, who, who, knew, who knew philosophy. And even those who maybe looked, in some degree, askance at philosophy were very familiar with it. Uh, Judah Halevi, um, in his book, uh, The Gazari, talks about it. Um, so, what is it, I mean, what, what sets the Rambam apart from, you know, all these other Jewish uh, medieval writers who are familiar in using philosophy one way or another, and the Rambam. What is it? You know, what, what is the what is the distinction here between them? Well, it's a good question. I think that you're right. That that Maimonides wasn't the first one to, in some way, try to do this. This goes back to Philo. Philo was a Jew who lived in Alexandria at the time of um, at the time of. Uh, the uh, the first century. Um, so Maimonides was not the first thinker to try to put together, as it were, Greek thought with Judaic thought. He wasn't the first. But Maimonides was far and away um, in 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 his depth of understanding and his in in the clarity of his writing 
in 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 his philosophical astuteness, he was he was far and away, I believe, uh, on a different level than than Philo, Sadja, any any of those um, thinkers. So he didn't he didn't initiate the, the the genre, as it were, but he but in his mastery of Aristotle, um, in his mastery of philosophical argumentation. And the truth is, a lot of his Aristotle was, you know, he, he had it secondhand through Arabic translations. I think, as far as we know, right. he didn't read Aristotle in the, in the original Greek. Mm-hmm. But in any case, his mastery of philosophical argumentation and sophistication was was far more than than his predecessors in the Jewish tradition. Um, now, um, uh, so he he I think I think. Um, that's 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 the real distinction between him and his predecessors is his philosophical acumen and also his 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 mastery of of the scriptures in the Talmud was 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 equally uh, equally uh, on 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 a um, you know a level that no one had achieved before him. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I can put my finger on a specific thing. I mean, he did, he did come out in in some ways, in terms of the content of what he what he proposed. He um, he came out pretty strongly in certain respects, uh, emphasizing the rationality of Judaism, and, and try, in other words, as I say. Pushing rash, uh, pushing a sort of um, pushing the line that Judaism is at its core a um, a very a, a very rational enterprise, yet at the same time maintaining uh, and and this is where you get in some tension and some some disputes among scholars about how to properly interpret Maimonides at the end of the day. Is you know to what extent was Maimonides really saying that um, Judaism is a sort of cover for something else, mm-hmm. namely philosophy, and to what extent did he really manage to reconcile the two? Um, yeah, maybe, maybe you have a question, or well, uh, I, I mean, I can give you an example of of this sort of thing. Um, and that is what I have in mind is um, to what extent is the ultimate goal of uh, all the practices of Judaism, you know, all the mitzvot, all the commandments, the do's and don'ts. Judaism has a lot of do's and don'ts, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, festivals and holidays, and it has all sorts of practices having to do with, you know, keeping kosher and, and keeping the Sabbath. To what extent are all those practices really a means of getting a person to come to some kind of fundamental understanding? To what extent is Judaism really all about uh, getting people, getting Jews to reach some kind of intellectual goal and such that the practices are really not the main thing. It's really about the intellectual comprehension. Um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot in Maimonides that seems to point in that direction. But that's what he's in the end saying is that 
all of the practices of Judaism are uh, designed in order to get people to come to have the right intellectual relationship with the eternal. Um, so some people take Maimonides to be to be quite quite radically much more than any of his predecessors, certainly Sajikon or certainly Halevi, who, who was much more, um, I would say, less rationalistic than, right. than uh, Maimonides was. Um, but but, but um, maybe I should pause and let you chime in and well, ask a question you, you were, in the you right were, direction here. Yeah, you were speaking about uh, you know, rationale, and I, I'm thinking back of when I first, discovered the truth because I, I was a Christian I went into the Messianic movement and over all of these years with the studying that I did I couldn't make everything work the numbers just wouldn't add up in some cases to you know they, they had successfully built a bridge from the Tanakh to the New Testament but in, in most cases they they just did not so I forever had these questions and when I sat down for the first time, and started studying Torah, uh, the, the you know the five books of Moshe, with the assistance of the writings of the commentators, it made rational sense. In fact, for me, early on in, in that, it stunned me at how much sense it actually made from a rational standpoint. I mean, it just overwhelmed me that there would be sometimes I'd have to you know, run out of my office, uh, out into the kitchen, and, and tell my wife you know, the tremendous revelation that I had just had, and yet it was only a rational thought. <laughs> and, and, I, and I know <laughs> from, from, from my perspective is you know, transitioning from being an idolater to not being an idolater, Judaism, Torah, was the only thing that made sense, and it was overwhelming sense from the rational mind thought. It didn't take this enormous intellectual exercise in order to get there, and and so from a rational perspective, I you know for me I can identify with that greatly because that's what overwhelmed me and really set me on the path uh, to Hashem, to being a Noahide, and in functioning and in doing the proper things on Hashem's path. Mm-hmm. And 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 I, I'm going to have to kind of wind that thought up because we are bumping up against the uh, uh, break here, and need to uh, let uh, Israel National Radio do a little business. Uh, but we are coming back to have further discussion with Dr. Golding uh, on the Rambam and and how all of this relates to being a Noahide, being a righteous Gentile. But until then, stick around. Don't leave. We'll catch you on the other side right here on the Noahide Nation Show on IsraelNationalRadio.com. I believe in the living of a Torah life, and I believe that living in the land of Israel is exactly where God wants the Jewish people to live that life of Torah. Torah Tidbits Audio is brought to you on Arut Sheva, www.israelnationalradio.com. When it comes to spreading Torah to our fellow Jews, we don't have a limit. God, ease our suffering in this our moment of great despair. Yea, admit this good and decent woman into thine arms and the flock in thine heavenly area up there. 
And Moab, he laid its down by into the band of the Canaanites. Baruch Hallelujah. Israel National Radio, keeping the spirit of Zionism alive. Welcome back, everybody. We appreciate you sticking around here for the second half of the Noahide Nation show. Before we get any deeper into this discussion with Dr. Golding, who is our guest, uh, I want to go ahead and remind everybody about the email that you can use to send us your questions, comments, likes, dislikes, just whatever you feel like. And that email, my friends, is noahide, N-O-A-H-I-D-E, at israelnationalradio.com. Well, Adam, we've been having a great discussion here, and I'm so glad that Dr. Golding was able to come back for a second show because he is a wealth of knowledge. I had no idea he was so knowledgeable of the Rambam. Well, he, he knows quite a bit, obviously. That's why he, he was the, 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 the perfect choice to bring on a show uh, you know, about the Rambam. Specifically, what I want to get into right now, and this is really what you know I wanted the meat of the show to be about. This is this is a very important question, Doctor Golding. Was the Rambam more of a philosopher than a religious Jew? Did he just pay lip service to Judaism? What it seems like there is this controversy about that. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Well, um, there is a, there is a uh, very lively, ongoing scholarly debate to what extent you know Maimonides is really a Jewish thinker uh, who's also a philosopher, and to what extent he is really a philosopher who's disguised in Jewish clothing. Basically, uh, I'll tell you one thing that enabled this whole thing. There's, a, there's a, a famous scholar by the name of Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss, I'm not sure exactly when he died, maybe in the 60s or so, maybe later, I might have my dates wrong on Leo Strauss, but Leo Strauss was a very uh, well-known interpreter of Maimonides who very much stressed the notion that Maimonides was really a philosopher who dressed up in in the Jewish uh, outfit, so to speak. There is actually, there was a, a, some of the source for this comes from a Muslim writer named Al-Farabi, where uh, Maimonides got a, some of his ideas from, including the notion, uh, although you find that there's, I shouldn't say that because there's really um, sources for this in the Jewish tradition as well. But what I'm getting at is that there's a distinction made between the so-called esoteric teaching and the exoteric teaching. The esoteric teaching is the real true teaching. The exoteric teaching is the teaching that a person or a tradition provides, as it were, to the outside. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what I'm saying here is that what, Le- what Leo Strauss said here is that on the outside, exoterically, Maimonides was a religious Jew who advocated keeping the law and keeping all the details of the commandments and all the outward sort of trappings of Judaism. But on the inside, this is now Leo Strauss's view, on the inside, the esoteric teaching is that really all those outward trappings are really sort of, um, um, you know, secondhand, unimportant relative to the inner teaching, which is that 
the truth is a matter of philosophical comprehension and reflection. And all the outward actions of keeping all the rituals of Judaism were basically just a sort of, um, uh, either for the masses, for public consumption, people as a general rule, are, most people are ignorant and they need some kind of set of practices to go through to keep them on the straight and narrow, but for the philosopher, for the intellectual, all of those things are really secondary to a really true comprehension, intellectual comprehension of God. Okay? So, and Maimonides enabled this. I, was, I made the point about enablement before. Maimonides himself said in his writings, in the Guide to the Perplexed, he says specifically that in his writings he is going to make statements that are contradictory and only the few, only the small number of readers who are really bright and really smart are going to be able to really know what the true teaching is. You see, so he was kind of setting himself up to be interpreted in this way. Mm. Uh, it's very easy to, well, I don't know if it's very easy, but he, he enabled by using this language of, you know, he didn't have a high opinion of the masses. He, he explicitly said that the Guide to the Perplex was written for a very small number of people. Right. And for most people, you need, it, the implication, or the seeming implication is that for most people, you need to have rituals. You need to have outward trappings. You need to have commandments that look like they're very important and you need to take them all very seriously. But for the few, for the philosophical elite, he seems to be saying, and again, this is Leo Strauss's interpretation, right. is that it's really about a sort of philosophical comprehension of God and of philosophical truths that most people can never get to. Um, so that, that's one view of Maimonides, is that all of his writings about Jewish law and Jewish practice are really secondary to what's really important, and that is a philosophical comprehension of the truth. And how do you reach that? You really reach it by doing philosophy, not by spending your time keeping the Sabbath and, and keeping kosher and doing all the ritual laws. And you don't really get there by studying and learning in great detail the Talmud, except for those portions of the Talmud that in some way touch on philosophy, mm -hmm. which are here and there, but... Um, so um, that's that's one view of Maimonides is that is that really he was a advocating a philosophical approach to the truth, and all of religion, all of Judaism, is just a sort of outward cloak for the few to engage in true philosophical comprehension. That's one view of Maimonides that he really was more of a philosopher than a than a religious Jew. So um, that's not the only view out there, though, and, of my mom. And, that's, not, and, that's not the only possible interpretation, and it's not the interpretation that I myself would 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 be in favor of. I, if you want, I can elaborate on that. Uh, yeah, if you would, because uh, this okay. is this is uh, uh, very interesting. Because uh, certainly, uh, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, I, I can understand why that belief would exist. But knowing, well, obviously I didn't know Maimonides, but in seeing his work, it is essential that you do the doing 
part of yeah. Torah in order to have that connection. Certainly, the, the connection comes in benefiting mankind because there's no mitzvot that you can really do that benefits the creator. Uh, the, the mitzvot are, are for the uh, benefiting of us and, and mankind. So, yeah, if you would share your side of this, I, I would greatly appreciate it. Well, what I was going to say was that I think that this view of Maimonides is, you know, it, does, it doesn't, in, in, it sounds like it's a tempting view, but in the end I don't think it's the right view of Maimonides, and I don't, I don't think it fits with his life. Maimonides was very, very much involved with the Jewish community. He was very, he was very much a, he, he wasn't a sort of a guy who went off on his own and had nothing to do with, with people and just sort of sat and contemplated God. He was very much a, an active guide and leader for the Jewish community. And so for one thing, this perspective on Maimonides, the sort of Straussian perspective I was giving before, doesn't fit well with Maimonides' life. Uh, the other thing is that I don't think it's the only possible interpretation of his texts. I think that, uh, while, while, I, while, while I do think that Maimonides was something of an elitist in the sense that he thought that really only the few are able to access what it's all about, you know, the simpleton, the plain person, uh, is not able to to lead a a good Jewish life. I, I, it's some some of Maimonides' passages seem to seem to suggest just that. But um, I think what what Maimonides is really up to is the following, and that is that it's not in the end just about that. This is the critical point. It's not just about comprehension. There's a lot in Maimonides that seems to count in that direction, that it's about comprehension, it's about intellectual understanding. But if you look at the very end of the Guide to the Perplexed, which seems to be the culmination of the work, Maimonides comes down very strong that the purpose of Judaism is ultimately to bring about an imitation of God in action, that the love of God love of God, which, which requires understanding, but goes beyond understanding. Love of God involves an, an active imitation of God, and the way that a human being actively imitates God is by living a life of righteousness and justice and benevolence. And so toward the end of the guide, it turns out that all of the comprehension, all of the understanding, all of the intellectual arguments that are supposed to lead a person to understand God and to prove God's existence, it's not just about, in the end, it's not about a dry comprehension of God. It's about living a certain way of life that's supposed to infect one's entire uh, uh, being, one's entire range of actions, and that transforms, that, that has implications for how one lives as a social being. And that's why Maimonides was not just someone who went off in a corner and contemplated. He was an active leader and guide for his community and for the worldwide Jewish community. You see? So intellectual comprehension for Maimonides, there's no doubt that according to Maimonides, intellectual comprehension is very important and very highly valued. But in the end, it turns out that there is something even higher than intellectual comprehension, and that's the active imitation 
of God's way of being in the world. According to Maimonides, what we can understand about God is, first of all, a lot of negative things. We know that God is not made up of parts, that God is not many. But in the end, the most profound understanding that we can have of God, aside from that, is that God is an active being who is creative and who is, who is benevolent and who, is, who acts in the world, who gives things to us, and who is a generous God, also a God of justice, but who is also a God of love and compassion. And the highest way we can relate to God is by becoming like God, not just understanding God, but by behaving in a certain way. So um, I, think, I think in the end that um, to some degree there is a kind of, um, <clears throat> there is a kind of, a, if you will, a, I don't want to say denigration, but somewhat putting down of the ritual aspects of Judaism, um, which, some, which I think a lot of his contemporaries and people who came after it, some, a lot of the rabbis didn't, didn't like this aspect of his thinking. But... Um, well, while there is, while there is a, a demotion, if you will, of some of the ritualistic aspects of Judaism, nevertheless, there is a, there's still a very active, there's, there's still an emphasis on the active uh, aspects of Judaism that uh, involve justice and compassion and benevolence. So it's not just about philosophy in the end it's also about the kind of the kind of person that you are and how you behave and that's that's i think the true maimonides well and i think this is probably a great place to go ahead and do a, a little bit of a review for sure. a, a noahide expression of being Hashem, emulating Hashem, and that would be, of course, with the uh, seven Noahide laws. And I'm going to go ahead and just review the the seven major categories, uh, starting off with the prohibition against idolatry. And there's also the prohibition of murder, uh, not to commit murder. You're not supposed to commit theft of any kind, not to commit uh, blasphemy uh, against uh, Hashem. Uh, no sexual transgressions of any type. Do not eat the limb of a living animal. And, of course, the positive mitzvot is to establish courts of justice for the purpose of seeking justice and ruling in a just fashion upon the seven Noahide laws. Of course, the Rambam in his uh, Rambam's Mishnah Torah elaborates on these at length and at depth. You know, getting back to this whole discussion that you're, you've presented the Strauss view and you've presented your view, I've got to say the Straussian view has never made a lot of sense to me personally because, you know, when you take the, the Rambam into its totality, I think like you were suggesting, I, I think you start seeing some flaws in, in what Strauss was suggesting. Because, well, we had our, our discussion on, on natural law and Noahide law and, and the, you know, and we, we touched briefly on, on this idea of, of whether the Rambam would, would be okay with this notion of, of uh, a purely rationalistic uh, notion of law, and, and he wasn't. And it would seem like if he were the philosopher that Strauss makes him out to be, that there would be a lot of things we would see that, that are different in the Rambam. He would have much different perspective. He would push this notion of a natural law or something similar to it. But he, 
he uh, he doesn't. He has. He seems to have a, a notion that uh, you need God for morality. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Except that that maybe you know Strauss could say that. I'm just trying to you know think out loud here. What sure. Strauss could say, might say, is that according to his view, um, it's not about morality in the end. Morality is uh, has to do with action, right? Sure. Generally. And according to Strauss, Maimonides' view is that morality is secondary to comprehension. Mm-hmm. It's all really about the intellectual comprehension of eternal truths and the fundamental eternal truth, which is, which is the truth of God. So um, Strauss could be happy, as it were, living with the fact that, according to Maimonides, morality requires revelation. Um, because how you act is not really the key anyway. The key is what you think. If that if that were the case, you know, this would be my, my, my counter question to just Strauss. If that were the case, then why do we have one guide to the perplexed and, you know, 14 books of the Mishnah Torah? Yeah. Well, you know... I mean, he would say, he could say something like, well, you know, he, 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 was, he came out of the Jewish tradition. Yes. And, uh, you know, he wrote, he wrote the code in order to kind of get it out of the way, as it were. <laughs> I, I agree. I don't think it doesn't, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It, it's not a, you know, but you, you see, you, you read people the way you want to, um, you want to read them in the end. Right. But if you're bright, you can sort of come up with arguments for why, ex post facto, you know, why you read things those way, that way. Right. I mean, Maimonides was a brilliant man and a brilliant thinker, and he, he found himself in this tradition, and he, I mean, he does say some, some radical things. I mean, he says, I'm going to write this code of law, and once you have this code of law, you don't need to read the Talmud anymore. Right, I mean, it that's is. an amazing, shocking <laughs> thing to say. It is, it is. And, it, uh, and it there, bothered a lot of people in the tradition. There are some people that have so, taken him seriously on that point, though. So, <laughs> Yeah. You know, within, right. in the, the Jewish community. Yeah. But, but, he, but he, is, he, is, he is amazing. And I guess you could say that everybody wants him on their team. You know? That's true. That's <laughs> very, very true. Everybody wants him on their team. You're absolutely right about that. You know, there's um, very, very traditional... The Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, may he rest well, he he was a very big fan of Maimonides. I mean, he tried to interpret Maimonides to fit his view. Mm -hmm. And um, the reformers and the reform movement in Judaism and the conservative movement in Judaism, they have their own version of Maimonides. So it's true that people want Maimonides on his team because he was such a, an amazing, brilliant thinker that they, they, uh, they you're, you're absolutely right, they want him on his team. Well, and, you know, that's a, a brilliant way of, of, of stating it because obviously he was certainly one of the greatest thinkers of his time and possibly even now, but he was also a doer. He, like you said, uh, he was very active in his community. He just didn't sit around and think great thoughts. This this is a man who went out and actually did something with those great thoughts. And I think that's probably the real 
epitome of this man is that he, that he had both uh, uh, in, in such a managed way. It's, it's totally reflective of his work, Rambam's Mishnah Torah, and then the complete other side of the spectrum, Guide for the Perplexed. Is yeah. that is that a yeah. fair statement? I mean, uh, here again, I'm I'm looking out the window for the rubber truck, but uh, to me, it, it would seem that uh, that is a, a, a reasonable thought because he was not only a great thinker, but he was so uh, active in in his life. I mean, his life reflected the doing part. I I, I agree. I think that's true. You know, I think you're making a very valid point. I think that. Um Sometimes, I mean, you know, I'm trying to be generous here uh, about the the view that I that I don't agree with. But I mean, it, it is true that sometimes sometimes the way a person or a thinker lives his life doesn't fit with what with what he says in his books. Right. It can happen. Sure. You know? Nietzsche, um, for example, was. But I, I think if you wanna if you wanna have a, a wholesome picture of Maimonides as a man and Maimonides as a thinker and the writer. That the, the, the Judaism and the practices of Judaism was just a cloak for something else. I, I think it, it I think it strains credibility. But on the other hand, the fact is that he he drops a lot of hints in his writings to the effect that he is that he is an elitist in the end. And I, I I'll tell you, I, I you know the thing that I personally I, I regard Maimonides as one of my personal heroes, if you will. But I do think that 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 Maimonides, in, to some degree, did overemphasize the the intellect. I, I think he did. He saw. I think he was a, a little bit too much taken. I mean, who am I to criticize Maimonides? But anyway, <laughs> I'll do whatever. I think he overstressed the intellectual aspect of the human. Even though what I said before is still true, that is to say that 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 um, it's not just about the intellect. It's about it's about acting and about living a just and compassionate and benevolent life. But I, I think when it came to his understanding of God, he had, I think, a bit of an over-intellectualized perspective on who God is. Uh, that's what I think. Um, I think it might take a while to sort of explain and, and work this out in detail. Yeah, but, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm afraid that that would wind up taking us into a, another show. <laughs> and right now we're faced with the end of this show. I'm always so sorry when the hour ends in in such a short order, but I do want to thank you once again, Dr. Golding, for for sharing your time and your wisdom and your knowledge. It's it's certainly been an enlightening experience for me. Well, it was was really my pleasure, and I enjoyed your questions, and and I wish your your, uh, listeners all the best in the world. For all of our listeners, thanks so much for being with us this week. We always appreciate it. Keep those emails coming. And always remember, my friends, to look to the heavens for your strength in Hashem because I guarantee He is always looking out for you. So we'll see you next week. Shavua Tov. Come on back here for uh, a visit to Noahide Nations right here on IsraelNationalRadio.com. Sometimes I get so depressed when I read about Israel in the newspaper, but then I can go and download Israel National Radio programs. They get me excited about being Jewish, about living in Israel. I love the enthusiasm of their hosts like Yishai Fleischer, Tovia, and Tamar, and all the rest of the INR show hosts. It makes me so happy to listen to them. www.israelnationalradio.com
spreading the light of Israel around the world. This is Jenny. I'm here at Israel National Radio. I'm so happy and、uh, God bless Israel. 大家好，我是廖文玲，现在是在 Israel Radio Station 这里。I really、uh, encourage everyone to come back to the Israel, and this is a holy land. This is Israel National Radio. I'm happy. God bless this place, protect this place, and be wisdom always. You're listening to IsraelNationalRadio.com. 